Hey, brother, there's an endless road to rediscover. Hey, sister, know the water's sweet, but blood is thicker. Oh, the sky. Welcome to the Reformed Brotherhood. Brothers don't shake hands. Brothers gotta hug. I'm Tony. And I'm Jesse. Brother? I'm going to have a brother? I've always dreamed about having a brother. If you'd like to join our brotherhood, you can join our Facebook group. You can email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at reformbrohood. You can also subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother-in-law. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. So, Tony, I want to talk to you first and foremost about this most amazing thing that my wife, Jen, and I have been watching on TV. Are you ready for this? Okay, let's do it. So, there is this show, which you may be aware of, called The Great British Baking Show. Have you heard of this? I have not. Oh, my sounds amazing. Gosh. Well, here's the thing. First off, I want to make three points about this show and get your feedback. Um, But before I get to those points, I want to say only the British could have a reality show about baking, right? Because... Baking is mostly baking, like letting dough rise and putting it in the oven. Yeah, that's true. So it's not like tremendously exciting. But here's the first point I want to make about this show. So obviously it's just people competing. They have a task. They bake stuff and then they get judged on it. Here's what's crazy. First, there is a huge differentiation between this show and any other American contest I've seen of like equal caliber. So, okay. you know, like if you've watched... Top Chef or Master Chef, or any other cooking show, they count down to the beginning of the event and then the contestants lose their minds. Like they're pushing right. over each other, they're running and going grabbing ingredients. I kid you not, in this show, it's like ready, get set, bake. And it's so anticlimactic because it's like the contestants slowly reaching for measuring cups. You know, <laughs> somebody is like, Oh, I thought the flower was on my left side. Oh, it's on my right side. I'm so silly. It, that, that's how it is. Only in Britain, they're so nice to each other. So the second point is I've learned I'm totally down with metric. I could really get on board with metric. And Jen and I watch this show like we understand exactly what metric means and we have no clue. So at one point, there's this older lady making some kind of sponge, some kind of pound cake. And the the judges are asking her, what are you going to put in this bad boy? And she's like, I'm going to put in 100 mils of brandy. And she winks at the camera when she says that. And we're like, oh, my gosh, you can't put in 100 mils of Britain. Like, we have no idea. It turns out that's like a half a cup, which is like nothing. But we're yeah, all over it. Much. Like, we think we understand metrics. So third thing, and this is the most hilarious. I, I think people should watch this show just because it'll expand your horizons. It'll make you want to bake, even if you have absolutely no talent. You'll be like, I can make a crumpet. No problem. <laughs> but the most, the most awesome thing is I was familiar that, of course, there's a big difference between pronunciation British English or the Queen's English and American English. No doubt. Everybody knows that. So things like aluminum and aluminium, of course, that's funny. But there are so many basic ingredients that have alternative pronunciations. And my favorite right now is oregano. Oregano. (laughs) (laughs) Took me a second. I was like, oregano? That's pretty funny. It took me a second, too. Like when I heard that the first time, I was thinking, man, what kind of spice do they have that looks a little bit like oregano that oh okay uh, that makes sense. see that's that's the weirdest thing about british english is like 
it doesn't actually make any sense. So I know that like it's I know that like there we have listeners in England and now we don't. But like I had a I had a British chemistry teacher in high school and he would say aluminium and he would be like aluminium and he'd be like or in your guttural language aluminum. And I'm like, there's no extra I in that letter or in that word. Like you're saying you're saying it wrong. You're adding a word. Um, I listen to Carl Truman a lot. And he's always saying instead of controversy, he's always saying controversy. Oh, I've heard I, that. I can't even say it. Con- contra- controversy. So they put emphasis in weird spots. But there's some words where they just they like have an extra letter added to it. And I don't understand where that comes from. That doesn't make sense. I will agree that the Brits have one up on us when they call herbs herbs because there herbs, is an yeah. H. I totally get that. Yeah, that's true. But the true. oregano, I've just committed myself by way of deep spiritual conviction that that's what I'm calling it from now on. I'm just going to go all out on that. Yeah, I'm starting to sense where your transition into our topic is coming from here. What's going to go in? That's exactly because yeah. the, the thing that I wanted to ask you to start with is, is baking a spiritual gift? Oh, I was going to go with the speaking in tongues. <laughs> that's, that's even better. So to all our British uh, listeners who clearly believe that speaking in tongues is a gift that has continued, uh, keep on doing what you're doing. That's really funny because one of the pub admins, the only continuation is pub admin, is a guy from Wales. That is hilarious. So we do actually have a British listener who believes in continuationism. There is no doubt that that dude recycles aluminium, cooks with oregano, and drives a car with a bonnet. Possibly. It's funny because he was making fun of Matt Butts, who we had on the show. Matt Butts. Uh, and he was trying to say that you could say anything with a Welsh accent and sound cool, but if you sound, uh, if you say something with an Alabama accent, you sound like an idiot. And uh, he said "armpit arbiter," which is like a nonsense phrase. But he's like "armpit arbiter," "armpit arbiter," and then Matt Butts was like "armpit arbiter," and he was making fun of Matt Butts by saying it. So shout out to Matt and Will. I love you guys. Even though uh, Matt is from Alabama and Will is a continuationist heretic. The Reformed Brotherhood podcast, the only podcast where you can hear Tony do every accent. (laughs) Uh, It's funny because Dad and I were actually talking about the metric system this morning and how we should switch to it because it makes more sense. Yeah, I'm totally down with metric. It does make a lot more sense. Like base 10 instead of base 12. Like that's the nerdy mathematical. Yeah, but it's not even base 12, though. It's like base 12 sometimes. Exactly. There's no consistency in that. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Until you get to like a mile, then it's like base 1256 or something like that. Right. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. crazy. I feel like we we just wanted to give everybody like the, the mathematical finger on that. Like we just decided we're not going to do what you want because we're Americans, America. Let's go back to like, um, uh, I forgot the word, uh, cubits. Cubits. <laughs> cubits. We'll, we'll do biometric measurements. A cubit. <laughs> Was the measurement from uh, the elbow to, was it the wrist or the tip of your finger? I don't remember. I think it was the tip of your finger. Yeah. So it's a measurement from your elbow to the tip of your finger, I think. That would be And great. it's like, who's, who's t- elbow to their tip of their finger? Like, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. That's true. It was definitely like kind of like an average, average number. But that'd be great, yeah, like, I instead guess. of, especially because we talked about, like, running on this show before. Like, if somebody registering for, like, a 5K and said it was, like, a 3,500 cubit. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so good. Once again, we're on to something here. 
We are. We are. We're going to come up with a new measuring system that's based on weird, obscure measurements. So it'll be like, we'll have to come up with a name later, but it'd be like the distance between your eyes. That'll be one of the measurements. The so eyes. to try to measure it, you're going to have to like put your face down on the table, <laughs> try to count it out. It's going to be great. Oh, that is fantastic. Well, here's the thing. If you've really enjoyed this approximately eight minutes of us equating <laughs> British English and continuism and new ways to measure, then what you should do is definitely stop right now, go to iTunes, and do what, Tony? You should go and give us five-star review, five and uh, we would definitely appreciate that. Uh, it really helps people find the show. I know that podcasts say that, and nobody thinks it actually does, but it really does. So if you could go, leave us a review, um, tell us a funny story, tell us how much you hate us, whatever it is, as long as you give us five stars. I don't care what you say, but uh, I'm just kidding. We do care what you say. We want your feedback. Uh, we want to work on some cool uh, new stuff, but we need some uh, feedback from our listeners to see kind of where they're at and what they think and how we're doing. We covet your responses. So what are we, we talking do. about tonight, Tony? We are talking about part two of our new mythology session. So last week, um, if you didn't listen, uh, I'm not sure how you're listening to this because you RSS feeds just download automatically. But um, if somehow you didn't listen to our episode last week on uh, the person of the Holy Spirit, you should go back and listen to that first um, because we're going to kind of assume that that sort of base level uh, introduction that we did last week. Not that it was a base level, it was kind of a technical talk. But um, tonight we're going to talk about the gifts of the Spirit. And, um, you know, we talked about this a little bit ahead of time. Uh, I don't have a PhD. Jesse doesn't have a PhD. Um, we're, not, we're not biblical scholars. We're not um, you know, I, I did a little bit of training in exegesis, but I'm not an expert by any means. So rather than spend a lot of time trying to do like an exegetical defense of uh, cessationism um, or to try to overcome continuationism or whatever, I just want to point you to some good resources um, for that discussion. So uh, Sinclair Ferguson, we actually mentioned this book last week, Sinclair Ferguson, a book called The Holy Spirit, uh, published by InterVarsity Press. And he discusses the subject of continuationism versus um, cessationism primarily in chapter 10, which is called Gifts for the Ministry. Uh, and it starts on page 208. He kind of gives an exegetical, um, he's a cessationist, so he devotes more time to that. But he does give sort of an exegetical defense or represents the argument that the continuationists give. If you're looking for something a little bit less technical, um, Modern Reformation, which is a magazine that's published by Mike Horton's organization, um, in uh, Volume 24, Issue 2, which was the March-April 2015, uh, the issue is called Signs and Wonders. There's a couple articles to point you to. One of them is called um, A Defense uh, a defense of Cessationism, which is um, was written by Richard Gaffin, Jr. And then there's another one um, written by Nick Batzig who is um, also, now he's the editor of Ref 21. Um, he, um, his is called Christ's Gifts of the Spirit. Both of those are really good articles, um, and I would encourage you to go take a look. So we're not going to spend a lot of time trying to defend one position or the other. Um, we're probably not going to even spend all that much time talking about those two subjects, but we wanted to get some, some good resources. And as always, there will be links uh, to what I can get uh, in the show notes for this. So if you want to check them out, you can go there. You can't access the Modern Reformation stuff without a subscription, but um, it might be worth it to just get a subscription. It's a good magazine. For sure, because Gaffin and Ferguson are fantastic. They write a lot of good stuff on this. Right. this. 
In fact, those two combined probably write like 10,000 qubits of pages per year. <laughs> 10,000 qubits. That's a lot. It's, they are writing this very yes. second all the time. I mean, I they're listening to this while they write, but they just right. write nonstop and they're great. Those are really good resources. Yes. So Jesse, uh, we're talking about the gifts of the spirit tonight. So why, why is this topic potentially uh, controversial? seems like blessings from the Holy Spirit shouldn't be a controversial topic. Actually, actually, that's a good point. I've never actually had somebody bring it up like that. Like here is God and he's indwelled you with a part or himself and he's giving you blessings and we want to take that and make it very controversial. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's the fact of the matter is it's true. I think because we end up trying to label them and in so doing, because we want to label them so badly, we want to try to understand, well, which ones are relevant now in this period? And right. Paul in particular in Corinthians 12, 13 and 14, those are like the major passage we always go to. He has a lot to say about them. And so we immediately want to kind of impose ourselves into the passage to understand where am I and do these still apply and how do they flesh out in all of, you know, kind of modern Christendom. And I think the place that I, I want to start kind of answering that question and kind of also turning it back to you with a question, Tony, is that clearly Paul knew when he wrote to the Corinthians and other churches that this was something that we weren't the first ones asking, that it's been an issue for a long time. So I find it really telling that in Corinthians, I guess Corinthians 12, he writes, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, so he just throws it out there, I do not want you to be uninformed. So clearly right. there is a lot to be said about this. He wants to unpack it in a way that brings some kind of transparency and knowledge to it. So it's just a big issue and it's complicated and it's deep. And I, I, that really didn't answer your question, but that was my way that I did that. No, no, I, I think that that's actually a really good answer because what happens is um, the scriptures, um, are, although they are profitable for teaching reproof, correction for the church for all time, um, even presumably on some level into the eschaton, I think we're going to have, the scriptures are never going away. Um, we will look at them and learn from them in a different way, and we'll be able to kind of confirm some of our thoughts about scripture in a different way. But I don't think that there's ever going to be a point where, we're, where we sort of stop reading the scriptures. I could be wrong on that. That's kind of speculative. But um, the problem, I shouldn't say problem, but the challenge though is that we're reading someone else's mail, right? Exactly. So first of all, we're reading someone else's mail and that person, that someone else was, that mail was in a different language at a different time with a specific purpose. And we're not always clear exactly what that purpose was. And we're only getting half of the conversation. We're only seeing Paul's side. Um, and there are some glimpses where Paul sort of like almost quotes something from the letter he received or a question that he's answered. But by and large, um, all of the teaching, um, the major teaching on the um, the charismatic gifts as well as just sort of general gifting comes in Paul's letters. And so we are getting half the conversation uh, and we're not always 100% sure what exactly the context is. Uh, that said, the scriptures are sufficient and sufficiently clear for things regarding salvation, but even, you know, Westminster Confession says not all parts of scripture are equally clear alike. So there are parts of scripture that are less clear 
than others, and some of them are difficult to understand. You know, Peter even says that, that sometimes right. Paul's letters are difficult to understand and people distort them to their own destruction. So we don't want to be those people, you know, we're obviously not trying to distort the scriptures, but two good godly Christians who just want to love Jesus and serve Jesus can come to the text and make good arguments either way. Right. And because the gifts of the Spirit are so central to Paul's um, Paul's teaching on how the church functions— um, at least the church in the first century, how the church in the first century is supposed to function. Um, it's it's sort of at the core of our identity as the church, how the spirit functions within our midst. So I think that's why they're controversial is because it's really important and it's central to our identity as Christians. Yeah, that makes complete sense to me. I mean, in fact, what's interesting is if you're reading through the New Testament, the first place you run into the term spiritual gift is Romans one eleven, I believe. Right. And Somewhere that's what Paul, there. of course, writing to the church at Rome, says, I long to see you that may that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So there are parts of this that we can glean. We can understand some of the basic concepts of what spiritual gifts are, what role they should play in the church. And then we start to veer off into kind of various directions about, again, how they're applied and whether certain ones continue to be applicable and whether certain ones are not as relevant as they were before. But there, you're actually right in saying that there is an emphasis that they are in part the spiritual foundation of the church because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us and promoting within us these expressions of faith, which help us to mutually encourage one another. So it goes beyond, of course, just like talents and abilities, which also come from God, but these have a special purpose. And we want to get to the heart of what that special purpose is and how we may use them effectively in doing the Lord's work and bringing his kingdom into play. Right. And so I think, um, you know, it probably is helpful for us to even break some of these things up a little bit more. Let's do it. So, um, you know, there's different gifts in the, the New Testament, and we're not going to spend all the time to like go through every passage and discuss every gift. We're going to try to stay in more general terms. Can we just but, take the rest of the podcast to name all the spiritual gifts that we think are relevant? Yeah. Yeah, let's just like the spiritual gift of baking. We've already talked about that one. Baking. Um, the spiritual oregano. gift of oregano. Yep, oregano. Um, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. Um, <laughs> but you can kind of break up the spiritual gifts into two broad categories. There, and, and if you're on the more charismatic side, I haven't met a charismatic that really denies this this division either. Um, there are sort of. Um, you might almost call them natural spiritual gifts, which I know sounds like kind of a misnomer, but they're giftings that are sort of built into Christians that are part of our personality or part of our skill set, you might say. And I would call these the ordinary sp uh, spiritual gifts. So you might think of something like a person who um, has a natural affinity for being able to preach or to be able to speak publicly. Um, we could call that a spiritual gift of teaching. Right, that's that's referenced in the the um, New Testament that there's this gift of teaching that the Holy Spirit endows certain people with. Um, there's the gift of administration, right? Somebody who just sort of has a knack for knowing how to organize things, how to get things done. Um, my wife has the spiritual gift of administration. She she just is on top of things. It's like if she doesn't have a to do list. Uh, it's a really weird day, but she, she wakes up, she's got a mental to-do list of all the things that need to get done and the order they need to get done in, and she just knows the right way to do things. You might even talk about like the spiritual gift of hospitality, right? There mm -hmm. are some people who are just 
They're just, they know how to make someone feel welcome in their home. They know how to, how to make sure that someone feels like they're part of the family when maybe they aren't, or a visitor doesn't feel like a visitor. They feel like they belong there. So those are what we might call the ordinary gifts. Then there's also um, what what's variously called maybe the, the charismatic gifts or the signs gifts, um, the apostolic gifts. There's different names for them. And the names that you use kind of betray what your perspective on them is. Right. If I call it the apostolic gifts, then you can kind of know that that means I think that those were something that was for the apostolic era, not not for today. Um, you cessationist. Yeah, there we go. Those are those are things like, um, you know, you think of like the classic charismatic activities like speaking in tongues, um, gifts of miraculous healing, gifts of. Um, sort of miraculous words of knowledge where someone can just look into a situation and know something that they, they couldn't have come into that knowledge naturally. Um, those are what we might call uh, the charismatic or science gifts or something like that. How about healing somebody with your shadow or with a handkerchief? Uh, I don't know which spiritual gift that is. Uh, the spiritual gift of relics, maybe? Is that is that it? The spiritual gift of relics? Yeah, well, and even though we're kind of joking, that does bring up the point that the lists that we have in the Bible are not necessarily meant to be entirely exclusive or comprehensive. So uh, what, what I appreciate you driving at, especially with what we call kind of the quote unquote normal gifts is that the list is not to meant to be like, if you, if you can't fit within here, then you got a problem. You got to take a test somewhere and figure out how right. you kind of get pigeonholed into one of these particular things that Paul has mentioned. Right. Yeah. And, and this is, I mean, we've talked about, we did uh, our very first episode, we talked a little bit about sort of like general ecclesiology types things. And we talked about church membership and the, the theme coming up in those is that everybody serves a function in the body of Christ. You know, everybody has a role and that generally is um, fulfilled by these ordinary spiritual gifts or these right. natural spiritual gifts. Um, you know, we have all sorts of people in the church and some are good at one thing and others are good at another thing. And those are natural gifts that can be um, cultivated, right? I, I, I may have a natural tact for public speaking, but I can cultivate that and I can get better at it. Um, you know, you may have a natural gift for um, generosity, right? That's a right. gift that people have. And right. by practicing being generous, you can actually learn to be more generous. Um, and the same way by not practicing being generous or not practicing speaking publicly, that can kind of fade and fall into the background. Um, so that's that's why we think of them more along the lines of like natural gifts or abilities. Um, and we might even look at, um, I wouldn't want to call them a spiritual gift, but you know, you can look at a non-Christian and see ways that God has developed and built them. And you can look at that and say, man, that you might say, man, that guy could be a really good preacher someday if he only came to faith. Mm. Um, or we even look at some people in, um, you know, like Joel Olstein or T.D. Jakes. They clearly have a gift. Um, and I would say a gift that God has given them Absolutely. for public speaking and communicating and things like that. And they've taken that gift and used it for um, illicit purposes. Um, they're not obeying God. They're not preaching the gospel. Instead, they're using that for their own selfish gain and to lead people astray. So these kinds of spiritual gifts, nobody uh, that I'm aware of would say that these gifts have stopped or ceased or somehow are not functional um, because that's just, I mean, that's just ridiculous to say like, well, yeah, people, people don't have the gift of teaching anymore. Like it just doesn't make any sense right. um, because people clearly have these natural affinities and talents and giftings for, um, for teaching. And that's where the really important distinction comes in because 
I like to think of a spiritual gift as an ability given by the Holy Spirit to express our faith effectively. And that can be like in word or deed for the strengthening of someone else's faith. So you could have a lot of great speakers, but the leap from that being a natural talent into being a, a spiritual gift is one that is expressive of faith. So this is why I really appreciate churches who, when they take on leadership responsibilities, when they look in their congregation and they're cultivating disciples, that especially for their elder board, they don't just say, well, who here is like an accountant or who here is right. like a doctor? Somebody's got a skill set. They're concerned beyond that with somebody who's using that in a way that's expressive of faith in a way that strengthens and encourages others in the congregation. And I always love that because I think they're right on point. They're looking for what are spiritual gifts that are displayed by those, the congregants, and they want to use those. They want to leverage those in a way that builds the kingdom because just having somebody that speaks well or that has like a really good turn of phrase is not necessarily somebody that has the spiritual gift of teaching or prophecy or preaching like you're saying. Yeah. And I like to think of um, the difference between a natural ability and a spiritual gift is not so much the um, it's not so much in the ability itself. It's in whether or not the ability is being empowered by the spirit. Exactly. Right. So I can get up and I can give a speech. I can give a lecture and um, I, you know, I'm a Christian. And so there are various instances where I can say the Holy Spirit has moved through something that I've said that has nothing to do with my faith. Um, I can remember there was a time at Best Buy where I made kind of a passing comment during a presentation that I was giving um, about um, about morality and ethics and being being people of integrity. And someone came up afterwards and was really like convicted because they didn't feel they were a person of integrity. And that actually led to gospel conversations, and I was able to share the gospel with them and say, well, I'm not a person of integrity either, but here's what Christ has done for me. And they ended up coming to faith, you know, like a year later. So I can look at that and I can say, like, that was the spirit empowering my natural gifting of uh, being able to speak to a group. Uh, That's something I've never been nervous of. I've never been nervous to get up in front of a group and give a presentation or speech. Um, So I would say that that before I was a Christian— I was still never nervous to do that, but it wasn't empowered by the spirit. My words were not given to me by the spirit to accomplish his purposes in terms of gospel proclamation. So that's where I would draw the difference between just a natural ability and a spiritual gift is it becomes a spiritual gift when it's a gift that the spirit is using as opposed to a gift that the spirit is giving you that you're using for your own purposes. And this is the brilliancy of God, right? The brilliancy of regeneration that He's, you have from the beginning a natural talent, to, which he created. It, he is still the source of that. But when we speak of being a new creation in Christ, how he takes those natural abilities and turns them or magnifies them in such a way that they become real spiritual gifts where people are being transformed and saved by his grace, but you're being used as an instrument in that way. I mean, that's awesome, right? Right. It absolutely is. And I think one of the things that we struggle with, and, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, is I think sometimes um, we we usually usually I find Christians are pretty self-aware of what this kind of gifting is. Mm-hmm. You don't really usually find someone who thinks that they're like a great public speaker and then they get up in front of a group of people and freeze up and just can't do it. Um, occasionally you get someone who thinks they're like a great singer and they're not really a great singer. But most of the time people <laughs> understand go there. themselves. So I guess I'm just wondering, I'm one of those people. I used to think I was a great singer. And then all of a sudden someone one day was like, you're not really all that good. Did you try out for American Idol? Uh, no, I didn't. Oh, okay. um, but 
I think sometimes people are in a church where they they recognize that there's this gifting, gifting A, but they can't see anywhere in the church, in their local body where that that is needed. So I guess what are your thoughts about how, you know, what should a person do if they find themselves in that situation? That's a really good question. So I, I've thought a lot about what it means to take inventory of spiritual gifts. And this is one of those things, especially in the Western culture, has gotten a lot of attention. And because we have this emphasis on being able to catalog and identify so many tests for this, right? And, and I don't think they're not well-intentioned, but I think that it does complicate things. And I right. think that labeling is a problem. I'm not even sure that it's, it's often that important because I'm thinking again of a spiritual gift as th- this is to strengthen someone by a spiritual gift means to help their faith not give way as easily when trouble enters their life. So the best right. way for me to approach that question that I've learned is to think like this. The reason we have spiritual gifts is so that we can strengthen other people's faith. So is there someone whose faith is in jeopardy and how can I help? Is there somebody in my sphere of influence, in my small group, in my church that I'm aware of and I can help? And maybe that's just going on a walk with them and being a listening ear. Maybe it is baking them a pie. Maybe it is going and doing some kind of acts of service or trying to encourage them. And I truly believe that the Lord will bless those activities when we say, I want to help to affirm, strengthen, and encourage somebody's faith. And in doing so, probably a lot of your gifting will be revealed by that activity. But I think it's more important to ask, where is there a gap that I can serve? You know, if we say that just like in your body, the cells closest to the wound are the one responsible for the healing. Then when somebody is in jeopardy, we should be able to say, what can I do to help? What can I do to strengthen that person's love and service to God? And in doing so, I think that's going to reveal a lot about us. And so we don't have to get so concerned about I'm trying to do an assessment. I'm trying to look at my church. I'm trying to look at my congregation. I'm trying to look at myself. But I think God made it more practical for us just to step forward in faith and help. And when we do so, that he's going to reveal to us where our gifting lies. Yeah, and I think um, I I would answer that question kind of along the same lines is this isn't always the case. And I think think that churches should be – looking at their congregants, their members, particularly their members, right? We talked about membership. Churches should be looking at their members and pastors should know their members well enough to be able to, to discern on some level what their abilities and giftings are. And churches should be looking for ways to make use of that because it, it is absolutely the case that if you're part of a church and you don't feel like there is anything that you are able to do in terms of service, first of all, you're probably not looking hard enough. And I think that's kind of where you're, well, your answer yep, gets exactly. is like, you don't have to have the spiritual gift of child care to help out in the nursery, right? There's always a need somewhere, right? You don't have to have the spiritual gift of shoveling the, the stairs to offer to come over in the morning and help the pastor or take care of it for him to take care of the steps. That's a gift you um, have though, just by the way. Me? Yeah. That's good because I have to shovel the steps. Exactly. You got that gift, brother. Um, yep. That's And sometimes, you know what? That's actually a good point. Sometimes... Your giftings are made clear to you by what responsibilities are tossed in your life. Exactly. Um, I'm, you know, we're kind of joking about like the spiritual gift of shoveling the stairs, but like the spiritual gift of of service, the spiritual gift of being willing to serve. That's something that every Christian should look for and should have, right? If we're not willing to serve, then are we really Christians? I think is probably the question. Um, But what I was going to say is that. I think a person who is in a church who feels like they don't have a place for their unique giftings to be used should be bold enough to go to their pastor and say, look, I love it here and I really want to be here, but I don't feel like 
I'm a part of this body. I don't feel like the function that I have is necessary. And there's, I think there's one of two things that can happen, right? Sometimes the pastor will say, well, let me find you a place to serve. That's probably what's going to happen most of the time. Right. Um, sometimes it's not entirely unheard of that the pastor might say, you know what, you, you might be right. And maybe that means that God wants you to go look and find another church that really could make use of you better. Um, and it's hard for pastors to do that because there's sort of this weird inherent competitiveness between local congregations. Mm. But I think if the, if the local body, the different local congregations are working uh, well, then a pastor shouldn't be afraid to say, you know what, I heard that this church over there is really struggling. They've got one person who can preach, and so the pastor can never, ever take a vacation. So maybe we need to talk about, in the right way, you making a transition to that church because they need somebody who can do this. Right. Um, but that's never, I don't think that's ever a discussion or a, a decision that an individual should be making without talking to their pastor first. I totally and agree. And I think in most cases, the church that you're at is definitely going to be able to put you to use. You're going to find somewhere to serve if you're willing to be flexible about what it is that you are able to do and what you want to do. Um, there's almost always going to be somewhere. Um, there will always be somewhere that the, the, you know, current church track can put you to work and, and can have something for you to do. That reminds me, that's a great point, by the way. And that reminds me of something that I think bridges kind of both what we talked about last week and what we're talking about now. And that is that kind of in consummate harmony, when we talk about filling of the spirit and then by extension, acting in the spirit through the gifting that he gives us, there is this coalescence of divine sovereignty and human responsibility so that, right. that very famous verse in Ephesians 5, 8 that says, and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. What's interesting to me about that verse is it's not just straight up like an admonition against getting drunk. It's partly that, but it's interesting that that's being used by Paul as an example of not just here's bad behavior to avoid, but I'm saying to you, just as wine influences your behavior to such an extreme degree that it can be overwhelming, what I'm saying instead is have that kind of influence allocated to the Holy Spirit. Right. But it, he's saying as well that we we bear some responsibility in bringing that forward, just like you've said there, to not only pray that we would get kind of this new refreshing of power for ministry, but that we would actually seek it out. And that is actually the thing that I see that happens more, most often. So this whole debate about, you know, cessationism or continuism, I don't see that as the basic problem. What I actually see is the problem that, people are, are just not desiring very much to strengthen one another's faith and we should start right. there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's, I think that's exactly it is, um, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm critical of the charismatic and Pentecostal traditions. And some of that may just be my own personal history. I've had a bad experience, uh, but some of it, and I hope most of it, if I'm being honest, I, I can't say for sure, but I hope most of it is based on good, solid, exegetical and theological grounds. And um, one of the one of the problems I see with maybe not Pentecostalism as a theory, but with Pentecostals and Charismatics that I've actually interacted with is it really seems to be about the individual person exercising the gift a lot of times. Um, right. In its best expression, right, someone's going to pray in tongues and someone's going to interpret um, as an attempt to edify the whole body. But in most cases, I've just seen it. It's, it's like a badge of honor that well, I, I, I have the gift of tongues or I have the gift of healings or I have this gift, I have that gift. And very rarely have I ever run into a charismatic or a Pentecostal who comes forward and says, you know what? I was really blessed 
because God used me uh, the other night and in a way where I was able to edify the body because I had a tongue, I had a, you know, I had a, a message in a tongue and someone was able to interpret. And so I was so blessed because God edified the body. Um, I've never run into that. And, and I spent a lot of time in charismatic circles. So it's not as though I haven't been exposed to people of those positions. So I, I think you're right on when you're talking about the fact that these gifts of the spirit, whether it's ordinary giftings or, you know, we'll probably transition and talk a little bit about the charismatic giftings. Either way, they're supposed to be for the edification of the body, not for the edification of the individual. I think that's the absolute first list litmus test that that's what Romans one eleven teaches us. That's what all the subsequent stuff in the right. Corinthians teaches us that gifts are given to be given. So if we can't get beyond that, if you're trying to understand, well, is this particular thing a gift, an expression of faith that is uplifting and edifying to others, and it can't even get that far, then we ought to stop and consider it right then. Right. So let's take a minute and and define, we'll, we'll shift gears here because I know people have wanted to hear a little bit about continuationism, cessationism. Oh, so let's shift, let's shift gears a little bit and let's define our terms. So there are some in the Reformed world, and I use Reformed, you can't see it, but I'm doing air quotes because I'm talking about John MacArthur, who's not actually Reformed. Um, just throw that right out there. We'll just land that. Boom. Um, I'm, I'm hesitating what I was going to say. Um, we'll still have you on the show, John MacArthur. Maybe. We won't this, have you on the show, John MacArthur. Thanks not for if applying. we ever want to talk about beer. And I'm, <laughs> I'm an admin in the Reformed pub. There's no way he's coming on our show. That's true. Fair enough. Anyway, um, there are some, John MacArthur is one of them, but who want to define cessationism in like a hyper, super ultra strict way. So I don't know that John MacArthur would ever actually say that God no longer ever anywhere under any circumstances works miraculously through something that looks like one of these charismatic gifts. Um, I don't know that he would say that, but I get the suspicion that he probably thinks that. And um, he would define, you know, someone like a Wayne Grudem or a John Piper, he would define them not just as a continuationist, but as a charismatic. So he had this whole conference, which was after a book called Strange Fire, which I think he was totally misappropriating those uh, passages. The passage about a, um, Ahab and Adab and Abihu, I'm totally saying this wrong, but it doesn't matter. Um, he totally misappropriated those passages. And the problem is that it's not just charismatics and um, uh, cessationists. There's continuationists too. So let's define these. A cessationist is someone who's going to say that the um, miraculous signs gifts were characteristic of and uh, limited to the apostolic ministry of the early church. Not necessarily just the apostles themselves, because we see people in the scriptures who are, are executing these same kinds of gifts. Um, ironically, though, there is not a single instance of anyone in the New Testament praying in tongues where an apostle was not present. Right. That's something that I, I ran into when I was reading the other day about this. Um, so the cessationist position is that there are certain giftings in the New Testament that are unique to the time of the apostles and related to the apostolic ministry of the apostles. And so once that ministry was complete, and there are different definitions of when that ministry was complete, usually it's considered the, the close of the New Testament. Those signed gifts, those apostolic gifts ceased. So if we do run into a situation where we, we see someone who actually legitimately is speaking in tongues, 
right? Um, I know a guy in college who I didn't experience it myself, but I have no reason to doubt him. He tells a story of how he was on a mission trip um, somewhere in Africa and he was at, he went out to the well to get the water for the day and he struck up a conversation with someone who was there and shared the gospel with them and that person came to faith. And when he got back to um, the camp, there were people who were there with him who heard him who were amazed because they didn't realize he spoke the local language. And he's like, I don't. So he was speaking a known language that he was not aware. He was not even aware he was doing it. So those things, um, I have not experienced it myself, but I do. you do hear accounts of those. The hallmark of the way a cessationist would handle that is that although that is a gift that looks exactly like what we see in the New Testament, it's not the apostolic gift of tongues. Right. right? So God can still do whatever miracles he wants, including having someone speak a language that they don't know or understand a language that they don't know. He can still do that. But that's not the gift of tongues that the New Testament talks about in terms of the way a cessationist would handle this. Right. Exactly. And that would be I know, the exception rather than the rule. Exactly. And so some people are probably hearing me say that and thinking that's really post hoc. That just seems overlaid on the text. Again, we're not, I'm not an exegete. Jesse's not an exegete. So we're not going to, I'm not going to try to do that exegetical defense. I'm not qualified to do that. So I pointed you at the resources earlier. They make the exegetical argument. Um, be a good Berean and assess the text, assess what's being said yourself. But that's how a cessationist looks at that. Or um, I have a friend in high school who got hit by a car and the doctor said he was in major problems. His back was all messed up. Every muscle in his back was hyperextended. And we prayed for him at church and I was there. He went from being bent over in pain to standing up and being fine and went the next day and got an MRI and everything was fine. So I've experienced unique situations that are um, the only thing that can be said is that they're miraculous. I'm still a cessationist, though, because I don't think that that is an extension of the miraculous ministry of the apostles. I think that they're incredibly rare, and we should be skeptical of them. We shouldn't just accept those things. We should seek to verify and validate them and always compare them and, and put them under submission to the Word of God. And even though, you said this last week, I think, actually, even though the whole church age is characterized by supernatural gifts of the Spirit, Right. The profusion and distribution of those gifts rests in the hands of God. So we're, uh, you and I are both kind of on that cessationist spectrum. What we are not saying is that God cannot do miraculous and powerful things. Exactly. What we are saying is he has the right to do those in the way that he sees fit. And what he hasn't said in this age is that everyone should have access to them at all times and in all places. Right. And so so then we move. Um, I don't want to put them on a on a continuum, even though that's kind of what's happening. We move over to the continuationist position and the continuationist position is distinguished by the fact that they would see those miracles as active, but they are a continuation of the apostolic giftings. So the things that happen in the New Testament as part of the apostolic ministry They continue and are still a continuation of the apostolic ministry. So you may have a cessationist like me and a continuationist who actually have basically the same position on the frequency, how the church should exercise miracles, those things. And the main difference is viewing the nature of those miracles. There are cessationists that are to one side, we'll say the right of me, who would say that they would call me a continuationist for what I've said. I don't think they're right. Um, then there's the continuationists. And then I would say even further to the left of them is the charismatic camp. And the charismatic camp not only wants to say that the apostolic ministry continues, but that it actually increases in frequency, intentionality, intensity, and efficacy. So where in the New Testament, 
um, even in the New Testament, miracles were relatively rare. Right. They um, they were ice, not isolated, but they were sort of focused on the ministry of the apostles, and they were attended to by the apostles, usually by some sort of revelatory event. Um, they would say, yeah, that's great, but now we're going to do even more than that. We're going to be even more empowered by the Spirit to do even more than they did. You know, they take that verse where Jesus says, people will do even more than I have. Um, That's a very loose paraphrase. But they say, well, that's about us. So we're going to do the miracles that Jesus did, but we're going to do even more miracles. Um, So those are kind of the main camps. And, you know, I I think I've been pretty transparent. I'm a cessationist. So I don't I think that the apostolic ministry happened in the first century and it it finished in the first century. They laid the foundation. Right. There's that passage in First Corinthians three, the foundation laying um, era of the apostles. And now the ordinary ministers, the people that the apostles appointed, um, the people that Paul gives directions to Timothy and Titus of how to appoint elders, the ordinary ministry of the church from the time of the close of the apostolic age to the time that Jesus returns is an era that may have miraculous activity going on. I don't, I don't deny that, but it's not an apostolic ministry. Um, It's not an apostolic era. We shouldn't expect, we shouldn't expect the apostolic revelatory gifts any more than we should expect new revelation. And that's key. So um, what are your thoughts on that? I'm going to look something up while you're, um, while you're reflecting on what I just said, but what do you think? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I also would fall into the sensationist camp. What I, what I want to clarify is sometimes I don't like that term because it implies extremes. And of course there's always a lot of increased problems when there are extremes. That's where the errors occur. So Right. Like to bifurcate, you know, if you're saying like, well, on one side, there are those who are super gullible and they accept every wild claim to be a miraculous as a great work of God. And on the other side, there are those who deny present day miracles entirely. Some see demons and everything. Some see them nowhere. Some say right. that, you know, like all supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit were intended to be operative in every local church at every period of time since the apostles. Others contend that no supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit was intended to be operative in any right. local church at any period since the apostles. And I think what you and I are saying, or at least where I'm coming from, is we're trying to get a very clear and transparent definition of terms. We're not denying the miraculous and that God still has sovereign control over all things, including healing and the use of tongues, especially in proclaiming the gospel. But what right. we are saying is that these that, that's no longer normative. And that was only normative for a short period of time, especially as it was confirming particular supernatural acts of which in that particular season, it was appropriate and important that it do so. So I'm firmly on board that people have been healed in miraculous ways. I've also heard like amazing accounts of people speaking about, particularly in mission fields and in dark places where the Holy Spirit has enabled them to speak to like literally speak to people in a way that they were not trained to do. And the right. Lord bore great fruit out of that. All those definitions still subscribe to things we've been saying about what spiritual giftings are. But you'll find that it's in the corpus of looking at all these stories, all these accounts, that it shouldn't be normative. And we have to be careful about how we try to incorporate that into some kind of hierarchy of whether or not how spiritual we are and whether or not right. we have enough of the spirit because of these more, quote unquote, like extreme or demonstrative kind of manifestations of the spirit. Yeah, so I'm just going to read um, two 
um, two articles out of the Westminster Confession here. So this is the very first chapter, very first article. It's um, chapter 1-1. It says, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto the church, and afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people now being ceased. So basically what this says is that there's special or there's general revelation, which we haven't talked about, but there's general revelation. And that's enough basically to condemn people. It's not enough to save people. So God chose in Hebrews 1, uh, 1, he spoke in former times, at many times, in many ways, he spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these later days, he spoke to our son. So that gets us to, at sundry times, diverse man to reveal himself. But God then took that revelation and committed it to writing in the Holy Scriptures. And this is the hallmark of, of biblical reform cessationism, is the key moment where, um, where the sign gifts ceased was when there was no longer a need for revelation. Right. And that happened when Scripture was completed. So, um, you know, there are questions about, well, how do we account for the fact that there still seems to be reports of miracles in the early church. And there still seems to be reports of sort of these outbreaks of miracles. Even during the Reformation, we hear accounts of sort of these miraculous occurrences that seem to attend this great move of God. I, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that, to be honest. But the hallmark of biblical reform cessationism is that God used to reveal himself in this way through prophets, through men speaking as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. But in order to stabilize things and to preserve his word for all people for all times, he committed it to writing. So now that the old way is gone, the new way is here, that old way is no longer necessary and has been replaced and has ceased. So one of the common kind of like retorts that people have when they talk about like, well, I believe in the gift of prophecy is they'll say, you know, cessationists will kind of puff up their chest and say like, well, you better write that down and staple it to the back of your Bible. Now, on one level, on one level, I think that that is a legitimate critique to make is that if you're really claiming that this is revelation on par with the prophets, then then this is revelation on par with the prophets. Like we right. better write that down. Um, however, most most continuationists have categories that delineate between sort of thus saith the Lord kind of Old Testament prophecy stuff and what they're doing. I think that those those arguments are a little contrived but they have them so we can't ignore them um the other thing i just wanted to read oh, i just closed my tablet um the other thing i wanted to read quick is another section of that first chapter and it's talking basically it's it's talking about the principle of sola scriptura and it says um this is article nine it says um, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself, and therefore when there is a question about the truth and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. And then it goes on to Article 10 and says, The supreme judge by which all controversies, or as Carl Truman would say, contra controversies, well done. Speaking, in tongues, speaking in tongues there, well done. Um, 
by which all controversies of a religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentences we are to rest, can be no other than the Holy Spirit speaking in the scriptures. So what that last, those last two articles are saying is that since God has committed his revelation wholly unto writing, everything we need to know has been written down in the scriptures and preserved for all ages in purity. We no longer need anything else to judge in those cases. Amen. So that's another thing in the in the scriptures is we didn't have they didn't have a completed canon, right? Isaiah came along and there was still not all of Revelation hadn't been completed. Even Peter came along, right? We've got Acts 15. The apostles have to get together and they have to make a decision. Is it Acts 15? Yeah. The Jerusalem Council. They have to get together and they have to look at the scriptures and make a decision. And so they say it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. So they're claiming some sort of level of inspiration for their decision at that council. Um, maybe not quite on the same level as the prophecies, but a, a level of divine authoritative inspiration. They also didn't have the completed scriptures at that point. They didn't have the book of Galatians yet. Um, they didn't have the book of James. They didn't have the book of Romans. Some of these letters may have been circulating at that time, but they didn't have them and the whole church didn't have them. So those gifts were there first to continue to provide revelation, but also because the scriptures hadn't come. And so there needed to be a spiritual presence in the church to adjudicate the things that had not been fully revealed yet. And this actually gets into some one of the errors of the Roman Catholic Church. And this is where I think it gets really dangerous with some continuationists, is they make arguments that are very similar to what Rome says about the scriptures. Right. You have people who are coming out of places like IHOP, um, International House of Prayer, not Pancakes, International House of Prayer or Bethel Church in Reading. Um, some of the really kind of on the edge continuators, charismatics will say things like, well, the scripture is great, but like we don't really know exactly how to apply that to our current day. We don't really know for sure what it meant. Um, that's really, really dangerous. So. That's very similar to what Rome says, where they say, like, well, the scriptures are great, but you got to have an interpreter, uh, an interpreter who's infallible. Right. Right. Well, that's the same argument. So the the idea that we have Protestants who are saying the scripture is entirely 100 percent sufficient, yet still see some sort of need for the Holy Spirit to continue to directly speak to us. Um, that doesn't really doesn't really line up with me. It doesn't seem to to work. That makes sense. I mean, I think we we're also saying we want to be charitable in kind of the contrary opinion, at least by saying we recognize that a general outpouring fullness and manifestation of the Holy Spirit and his gifts characterizes the whole church age from Pentecost to the second coming. At the same time, the fact that throughout the Bible, the special activity of the spirit occurs in seasons and, and couple that with the explicit teaching of first Corinthians 12 through 14, that the gifts of the spirit are bestowed sovereignly just as God desires, as Paul says, but that should keep us from the error of thinking that we should expect equal manifestations of the Spirit at all times throughout church right. history. Right. So I think we probably should wrap up. I mean, it, we say it seems like we say this every week, but um, we could go on and on and on. And this is a dis on this is on. a debate that has been really. I mean, it's kind of funny because this isn't really a debate that's been going on in the church for a very long time. Because for most of the church's history, the church was effectively cessationist. Um, that seems a little weird to say, and I know people are going to be like, well, those Roman Catholics think that there's miracles going on all the time. Right. Um, 
there are periods in history where we see that. But by and large, even in even in the Roman Catholic tradition, um, you know, you think of like the the relics of saints and things like that. Even in that tradition, it's not really continuationism. It's not the living saints exercising miracles. Their miracles that they claim are are dead saints who are are causing miracles to happen from heaven. So that's a totally different thing. But in terms of the way that the average Christian lives, there hasn't been this charismatic thing going on in most of the church's history. The charismatic gifts um, seem to die out basically in the church, and they're basically gone until the like late part of the 1800s. Um, and then they start to come back. And then in the in the mid 19th and the mid uh, 20th century, there's like an explosion of Pentecostalism. So this really is kind of a recent debate. It's actually kind of unique in church history that this isn't a debate that's been raging for very long. Um, completely forgot where I was going to go with that whole train of thought. Oh, it was so beautiful. I, I was, was. going to add that. I think what you said also comports with what we know about the character of God, which Paul expounds on elsewhere. And that is, I was just thinking what you said, if, if we kind of allowed that there could be additional kind of more revelation or you know, additional sources of this kind of really deep truth, then we're also saying that there would be like increased chaos. And that's not the kind of God that we serve. Right. Paul makes it very clear that God is not a God of chaos. In fact, in those passages where he's talking about of speaking in tongues, it's interesting to me that from the forefront, he sees some particular dangers in that. And so he goes right. to great lengths to try to rectify them, to provide a rubric or this, this really helpful fencing so that you don't get too out of control. And that right. does say something to me. Yeah, absolutely. So, Jesse, do you have any um, closing thoughts or admonitions for our audience tonight? Yeah, so the one that really is coming to me as we've talked about this, actually, let me say two things. First, again, when this is over, which will be very shortly, go to iTunes, give us five qubits. Second five qubits. is... That I think really when we're talking about spiritual gifts, this is the basic challenge. It's becoming the kind of person who wakes up in the morning, thanks God for a tremendous salvation, and then says, Lord, how can I strengthen people's faith today? What can I do so at the end of this day, somebody will be more confident in your promises and more joyful in the grace because I've crossed their path. And I think that is going to lead us more profoundly and practically to where we can exercise our spiritual gifts than sometimes worrying about the argument of sensationism or continuism. Yeah. You know what that kind of reminds me of? And then we can close is um, I think it's in James where it says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask. Is that, does that seem right? Maybe I made that up, but it reminds me of Solomon in the old Testament, right? He, God comes to him and he says, Solomon, I'm going to give you whatever you ask for. You tell me what you want and it is yours. And Solomon says, what I really want is to be able to have wisdom so I can lead your people well. And so I can, I can be a good and a just king. Now, he seems to somehow, even with all that wisdom, screwed it all up. And I would have done the same thing. Maybe not what the same thing, but I would have screwed it up too. I would have been innate. Um, but what you're saying just rings true to the scriptures, right? Yes. We wake Amen. up, we thank God for what he's already given us, and we ask him to bless us so that we may bless others. That is the Christian life. Let let us be blessed so that we can bless others, not just for my own selfish gain or my own status or standing, but so I can go out and magnify God's name and bring more into the kingdom. I love that. That's Gifts are given to be given. Yes. So give us five cubics on iTunes. Yes. Give us the spiritual gift of ratings on iTunes. Amen.
Amen. All right, well, we will see you next week. Bye.